If you would take out your Bible and please turn in it to the third chapter of the Gospel of John. And we'll be looking again this week at uh, John three sixteen through verse 21. And there is a sermon guide in your bulletin if that would be helpful to you. Would you please bow and pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for the gift of your word. We are thankful for the opportunity to hear it preached. We're thankful to join with other Christians around the world right now to hear your word preached. Father, I pray for our sister church, Emmanuel Baptist, and for Dan as he stands in his pulpit. I pray that you would gift him to preach your word clearly and boldly, that you would do a great work among them and glorify yourself. And Lord, for us, we pray that you would come, that you would magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that your spirit would fall upon us and bring us a great awakening in our hearts. Convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Show us our need for a crucified and risen Savior. For your Son, who the righteous one that became treated as the unrighteous on our behalf. Father, I pray that your Spirit would open our eyes this morning and our ears and our hearts to receive and believe this Word. Father, I pray that your Spirit would fall upon me And that you would gift me with every gift necessary to open your word and proclaim it. Father, we pray that you would convict the sinner. That you would convert the lost. And that you would awaken in your people great love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in most evenings in our home, supper is not over with when the last child gulps down his food and runs off to watch TV. Supper in our home most evenings ends with a time of instruction in Christian doctrine, reading from the Bible and worshiping the Lord together as a family. And so I usually take down off the microwave a book called Teaching Truth and Training Hearts, edited by Tom Nettles. It's in our bookstall if you'd want a copy of it. That contains numbers a number of historical Baptist catechisms that people have used to teach their children and other unbelievers, the Christian faith. And so our boys have been growing up learning these questions and answers, and we discuss those things. And a few weeks ago, we were reviewing a question with our two-year-old, Micah, that impacted me with the importance of John 3.16 and the passage surrounding it. We've been asking him questions about human beings and God making us with bodies and souls and so forth. And I asked the question to Micah, do you have a soul as well as a body? And he responded correctly, yes, I have a soul that could never die. He said it as a two-year-old says it, but he said it. I have a soul that can never die. Now that answer doesn't deny the reality of the eternal death that we call hell. But what it's meant to teach and what we discussed was he is an eternal being. From now on, there was a time at which he and everybody else did not exist. But when we were conceived, we came into existence. 
We did not exist in eternity past, but we will exist in eternity future. Before we were conceived, we did not exist, but after our conception, we will never cease to exist. We will go on existing forever and ever without end. And that's true of you this morning. There will never be a point at which you cease to exist. And that's true of your children and your parents, your grandchildren and your grandparents, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your fellow church members. We will, we will exist from the moment that we come into existence forever and forever without end. What that reminded me of was my son has a soul that will never die. And so there are implications for how I raise him and how I teach him that will echo for eternity. And that means that teaching him the fear and admonition of the Lord is more important than finishing supper so we can go watch the next episode of Survivor. Because Survivor will end, but Micah will go on forever. And we see in this passage in John 3.16 that there are only two options for the state in which our souls will exist forever. There is on the one hand perishing, and on the other hand eternal life. And so the way we love our children is a matter of eternal life and death. And the way we love our neighbors and our church members and our spouses is a matter of eternal life and death. Loving like God loves is not a matter of making people happy, but bringing them to God so that He can convert them and give them the happiness of knowing Him forever. That's what love is. Love is helping people know Jesus Christ and the life that He gives. Well, last week we studied in the first half of John 3.16 what it means that God so loved the world. And in short, I said that the manner and greatness of the love of God for all the peoples of the earth is shown in His gift of His Son to be crucified as a substitutionary sacrifice, to bear our sins on the cross, so that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. The manner... And the demonstration of God's love is Him giving His Son to die as a sacrifice under His curse on the cross. That is what God's love is. And we saw that the world and those who live in the world, all human beings, are born sinful and depraved. They don't love God. They love wickedness. They walk in sin and in spiritual death. And they hate God. And the penalty for that is sin and God had such a great love for the world that He gave His Son to live a perfect human life and not deserve death and wrath, but to die under wrath for sin so that those who believe could be saved from that penalty. So this week we're going to see what God's purpose is. And we're going to see what our response should be and we're going to see why people respond as they do. The purpose for which God sent His Son and He gave His Son as a sacrifice is God gave His Son to save, to save those who would believe in Jesus from perishing and to give them eternal life. That is His purpose in His sending of His Son to die. To save those who would believe in Him so that they would not perish but have eternal life. 
Well, let me step back and draw your attention to something I've already pointed out. There are only two alternatives. In all the world, in all the world's religions, in all the ways that we live, and how different we can all be, there are only two ends that people face when their bodies die and when Christ returns. Perishing and eternal life. And John writes, whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. What is this perishing? It's contrasted with eternal life. And so we can assume, and Scripture teaches elsewhere, that this is eternal perishing. You face an eternity of life or an eternity of being destroyed, which is what the Bible calls hell. Perishing is what the Bible calls hell. And hell is a physical place, and we will go there in soul and spirit when we die. And when Christ resurrects us and there is a resurrection to judgment, bodies will be put in hell physically, and it is a place of eternal conscious torment under God's wrath. I won't go into any more detail on that this morning, but on our website, on the sermon page, you can find a sermon I preached called The Chaff He Will Burn with Unquenchable Fire and a look at the biblical doctrine of hell. Now, we can make you a copy of that if you'd like, but Jesus spoke of hell more than anyone else in all of Scripture. Talk about hell and unquenchable fire was on Jesus' lips more than any other author in Scripture. Here's one example. Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And Jesus is quoting Isaiah there, where Isaiah speaks of a new heavens and a new earth, and his enemies are cast out into a place where the fire is unquenchable and the worm does not die. An undying worm that eats the body and an unquenchable fire that consumes the body speaks of something that is eternal, that is conscience, conscious, and that is horrific. It is torment. And that's what hell is. And the only alternative to this perishing is not purgatory, it's not soul sleep, it is eternal life. There is perishing and eternal life. Well, what is eternal life? If perishing is being cast out of God's kingdom and tormented day and night forever, the opposite of that would be being brought into God's kingdom and being given the blessings of kingdom life. Forever. So that's what eternal life will ultimately be. It will be being born again in your soul, being raised from the dead to live with Jesus Christ and enjoy His presence for eternity without end. Life is entering God's kingdom and receiving its blessings. That begins, as we saw at the beginning of this chapter, with being born again. If you want to see the kingdom, if you want to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. And eternal life is something that can abide in us now. In 1 John, John writes that we know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So evidently, eternal life is something that can abide in you right now. But its fullness will be seen on a later day. Jesus says in verse 17, 
or John writes, that we will be saved. So eternal life is salvation from this perishing. Jesus says in John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And then Jesus defines clearly eternal life in John 17. He prays to the Father, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life ultimately is to know God and His Son Jesus Christ, who God the Father has sent. And so the ultimate expression of eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus, which is what we will do in the new heavens and the new earth with resurrected bodies as we dwell in His presence forever and forever. And Jesus said later in that same prayer in John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am to see My glory. Eternal life is being with Jesus to see His glory glory. That's the greatest thing you could ever have, seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. And that is what life is in its purest form. Well, God's purpose, His purpose then in verse 16 and 17 in sending Jesus was not to condemn the world, but to save whoever believes, to keep them from perishing and give them eternal life. John goes on in verse 17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The world was already condemned. Jesus didn't need to come to condemn it. He needed to come to save it. I want you to see how in these two verses, John repeats the word world. God so loved the world that whoever believes God sent His Son into the world not to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved in Him, might be saved through Him. John's language of saying, whoever believes, and God so loved the world, shows us that God's plan is one that is global. It is world-encompassing. It has all the nations in mind. And it also implies that the entire world is condemned and the entire world is going to perish if it is not saved. And that tells us Christianity is not a geographic or a regional religion. It is a message of salvation for all the peoples of the earth. Everyone needs to be saved through Jesus because the whole world is condemned apart from Him. This is not a national religion. And have you remember last week I said that the world is not a neutral place. When we go through John's Gospel, we look at the occurrence of the word world The world is under condemnation. The world hates God. The world rebels against and rejects and does not know its maker. It was already condemned and headed for destruction. So we see all of the world is fallen and sinful and headed for destruction. And all of the world is in need of salvation. And the word world also reminds us again of the extent of God's saving purposes said last week that John was using intentionally provocative language. When he says world here, he signals to his Jewish readers, look, the Messiah was not just sent for you. It was sent for the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans and the Greeks. God is concerned in terms of salvation for the world. 
for the Jew and the Gentile alike, which means Christianity is not a Western religion. When you study Western religions in college, in a liberal arts college, you'll study Christianity as though it's a religion of a particular region of the world. It's not. God intended for this gospel to be preached to all the nations because He intends to save people. Well, listen to to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. We are told as they sing to Jesus how worthy the, the Lion of Judah is that He, with His blood, purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And Jesus' commission to His disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew is... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has authority over all the nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So God's purpose is for the salvation of a people that is made up of people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation on earth. It is a global mission. We're fond, especially in our society, of classifying people by their color and their age and their gender and their social class, ethnicity. We like to keep people into little groups where they can check off boxes. That's not necessarily wrong. God recognizes tongues and tribes and peoples and nations. But we can see from this verse that in the end, the whole world can be divided into two and only two groups. There are those who are perishing and there are those who have eternal life. And that is... That is determined by those who believe and those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, then, is the dividing line of eternity. And I could write there that Jesus is the dividing line of humanity. All of humanity and all of humanity's eternal destiny is determined by how you respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. John 18 says... Whoever believes in Him, the one who believes in Him, is not condemned. But the one who does not believe in Him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We can't be too clear on this point. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what country you were born in. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter who your father was or your mother was. It doesn't matter what your ancestry is. It doesn't matter whether you are a direct physical descendant of Abraham or of Adolf Hitler. It doesn't matter whether you come from Israel or Iraq, from Jerusalem or Baghdad, from the Vatican City or Venezuela, from Chad or from Chile. You must believe in Jesus Christ or you are condemned. Without exception. Jew and Gentile, you must believe. Those who believe in Jesus, whoever they may be, that's what the word whosoever means. It doesn't matter who you are. If you believe, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. But if you do not believe in Jesus, even if you are the most orthodox Jew, you are condemned because you have not believed in God's appointed Savior King. Those who believe are not condemned, but have eternal life. Those who do not believe are condemned already, and they will, without exception, perish. Well, if belief in Jesus Christ is necessary for salvation, and if not believing in Jesus Christ results in our perishing, then one of the questions that we need to ask is, what is believing? 
and what is unbelieving. And we should also be able to say, what does it look like? How do I know if I believe? Or what would it look like? How do I know if I don't believe? Eternity is at stake. We should have some way of being able to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Because we do not want to enter eternity deceived. We don't want to leave this up in the air. And so John gives us in verses 19 through 21 a description of what unbelievers look like and of what believers look like and a reason for why they disbelieve and why they believe. John writes, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John describes unbelief and he describes belief. He describes the unbeliever and the believer and tells us why they believe and don't believe and why they act as they do. To begin with, the light was coming into the world. That's what we saw in John chapter 1. And the light is Jesus. Jesus is the light of the perfect revelation of the Father. He shows us perfectly what God is like in all of His love and grace and wrath and holiness and righteousness and beauty. To see the Son is to see the Father. The Son reveals the Father. And so if you love God, you will come to the Son. And if you hate God, you will hate the Son because He looks like the Father. Jesus removes darkness, He reveals truth, He shows sin, and He reveals righteousness. And the difference between an unbeliever and a believer is how they respond to God. Whether or not they love God and will walk in the light. Well, what is believing in its most basic form? The most basic definition of belief would be this. First of all, a knowledge of the facts. You know what is taught. Second of all, a conviction of their truth. You don't just know the facts, but you believe that they are actually, literally, historically true. And then third, a personal embrace of and commitment to their implications. So you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the King of the world. He was crucified on a cross for sins, lifted up under the wrath of God. He rose from the dead, and He's reigning at the Father's right hand. And you believe those things are literally, historically true. But that's not enough. The third implication, the third, third part of that definition is you believe those implications for yourself. You bank all of your hope on Jesus. You forsake hoping in anything else. And you trust that through His work, you will be redeemed. You see, believing is, that kind of believing is John's goal. In John chapter 20, John tells his readers, that have read all these things about Jesus, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the anointed King, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John wants us to believe and to embrace with all of our hearts and all of our trust that these things about Jesus are true and to follow Him with all of our life. Now, there can be false believers. It's one of the things we're going to see in the first 12 chapters of John is there will be crowds of people who say they believe in Him, but when He starts teaching difficult doctrines, 
And when he starts making difficult demands, the crowds turn their back and they leave him. And it has shown that they never really believed in him in the first place. About a year ago, when I first arrived, Ken Smith preached an excellent sermon on a, um, a sermon on seven texts where he looked at six confessions of faith that were false confessions in the Bible where people confessed faith in God and it turned out to be false. So beware. If you've made your profession of faith and you're resting in your profession, rest in Christ. That's what true faith is. Not the recitation of a prayer. Well, belief and unbelief are evidenced, we learn in these verses and elsewhere. They are evidenced in the affections of the heart, the affections of the heart and the actions of the person. Look at what John writes here. He writes about how the heart feels toward God and the light. He, he writes about how the, the person acts out of that love or lack of love. He says that those who do not believe love the darkness. Their works were evil. They do wicked things. They hate the light. And they do not come to the light. John is contrasting believers and unbelievers. And what do unbelievers do? What do people who don't believe in Jesus do? They do wickedness. They do evil. What do they love? They love the darkness and they hate the light. They hate Jesus. They don't want to follow Him. They don't want to believe in the Jesus revealed in these pages of Scripture. They love their sin and so they live in their sin. They might come to church on Sunday morning, but on Saturday night, they were loving sin. And on Monday morning, they'll be back to loving sin and living in sin. Well, likewise, John describes in verse 21 what the believer is like. And what does the believer do? Whoever does what is true comes to the light. They do what is true. They walk in the light of Jesus Christ. They come to Jesus Christ. They love Him. You seek after the thing that your heart loves. And so because the unbeliever loves wickedness, they do wickedness and they hate the light. But the one who comes to Jesus comes, we can imply, because they hate darkness and they love light. The difference between belief and unbelief is a matter of, how the heart, of what the heart loves supremely. Whether you believe or whether you don't believe is a matter of what you love most of all in the world. Jesus or your sin. And that is evidence, John tells us, by what you do. Whether you walk in darkness and in wickedness, or whether you come to the light and do what is true. Well, with the response being so obvious that we should believe in Jesus, and with the stakes so high, eternal perishing and the reward so great, eternal life in the presence of Christ, why don't people believe? Why don't people believe? John tells us that here too. Some people say today that they aren't Christians because they are tolerant of a diversity of religious views. Or others say that I have a scientific mind and I cannot believe because my, my demand for empirical evidence has not been satisfied. I talked to a woman a few weeks ago who's a Chinese uh, professor. She's going back to China to, to teach culture. And she said, I, people want me to become a Christian, but I can't because I need to remain unbiased when I teach my class. If I had any guts, I would have said, do you think that will fly with God? 
Why don't people believe? Tolerant, inquisitive, and scientific minds are not the cause of unbelief. Sin is the cause of unbelief. Failure to believe in Jesus Christ is not an intellectual, scientific failure. It is a moral failure. The reason people don't believe what the Word of God says is not because they've been enlightened by modern times. It's because they are in rebellion to the God who reveals Himself in Scripture. And so a depraved heart and a love of sin are the reasons people reject Jesus. A depraved heart and a love of sin. Look what John writes. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. They wanted to stay in the darkness and they refused to come to the light because what they were doing was evil. And they didn't want the light to reveal that. People hate Jesus. And you might say, you're an unbeliever and you say, I don't hate Jesus. I guarantee if you know the Jesus of Scripture and you're not a believer, you hate Him. Because the Jesus that our culture puts forward so often today is not the same Jesus that's in the pages of the Gospel. He is a terribly tough and tender and offensive and gracious King. People hate Jesus because they fear He will expose their sin, which is what they love most of all. John goes on to write, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. The light is Jesus. They hate the light and they do not come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. Why is it that romantic meals are eaten in dimly lit restaurants by candlelight and not in front of a 15,000 watt fluorescent work lamp? Because everyone looks good in candlelight, right? The dim lighting hides your flaws. And so you want to look good for this person that you're on a date with. You want to look great. And so you eat in candlelight because it doesn't show what you really look like. And you would be appalled if the waiter came out with a big old spotlight and shone it on your face and said, let your fiancé see what you really look like. That's why people don't come to Jesus. He's not a candle. He has a 10 billion watt spotlight and when He shines on you, your every flaw is exposed and laid bare. But, if you'll come to Him and believe in Him, your every flaw can be removed. But unbelievers, wicked, depraved, unregenerate people don't want their flaws removed. They love their wickedness. They love their evil deeds. And so what they say is, I'm going to stay as far away from that light as possible because I don't want to see or to show my true colors. They did not come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. Jesus says in John 7.7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates Me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world hates Jesus because His testimony is the world is evil. What application might this have to being a church and preaching the Gospel? How will the world treat us if we preach the Gospel according to Jesus? What will the world do if you, as Paul tells Timothy, 
preach the Word and reprove and rebuke and exhort? What if you preach a Gospel that demands repentance? What if you preach the Word of God that the book of Hebrews says discerns the thoughts and the very intentions of our hearts? How will people respond if you're giving them a Gospel and the Word of God that shows what they are? They hate Jesus because He testifies about the evilness of their works, and so they will hate you and me if we preach the Word. And what does this say about being a church? If we make the church a social club that is built around the things that people love in their unsaved condition, if we build the church around a love for health, wealth, and prosperity, or a love for children, or sports, or music, or motorcycles, or food, or clowns, then we will attract and keep a people, a group of people, who might stay in their unregenerate state, but love health, wealth, and prosperity, children, sports, music, motorcycles, food, and clowns. And you can expect the members of the church then to act like people who love the things of the world and not Jesus. But, if you, like Jesus, preach a sin-revealing, life-giving gospel, then you will attract and you will keep and you will be comprised of a people who love to come to the light. A people who hate sin and want it exposed and removed from their hearts. You will drive away those who love the darkness, those whose deeds are evil, and those who fear the light because they don't want their evil exposed but you will end up having a born-again church that does what is true and that walks in the light because it loves the light. And that will show up in how the congregation acts toward the Lord, the world, and one another. Well, question. We've seen that unbelievers don't believe because they're depraved, because they're sinful. But we know from Scripture, everyone is born in that condition. So, question, what is the opposite of not believing in Jesus? The answer would be believing in Jesus, right? The opposite of not believing is believing. Second question, if depravity is the reason for rejecting Jesus, then what is the reason behind believing in Him? If depravity is the reason we don't believe, what is the reason we do believe? Careful how quickly you answer that question. Common sense would say, if depravity is the grounds behind unbelief, then righteousness, the opposite of depravity, must be the reason that some believe. They believe because unbelievers are inherently depraved and wicked, but those who believe are in somehow inherently better than them. They have a bit better of a heart. They have a little righteousness, a little spark of life residing in them. And so due to something in them, they come to believe. Not so. Look at what John tells us in verse 21. He goes back to where he started John chapter 3. John 3 started with your need for God to do a remarkable soul-changing work called being born again. The Spirit has to change you utterly and make you something new. And John says here, when he's speaking of believers, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that he is slightly better than the unbeliever. No, maybe your translation doesn't say that. That it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Or as the NAS translates it, 
similar to the King James, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. In other words, he comes to the light to show that God has done this in him. This takes us where the chapter begins. If you want to see the kingdom, you must be born again. The Spirit must change you. Those who do not believe have depraved hearts and so they freely choose what their heart wills. Sin. And they flee from what their heart hates. Light. But those who have works wrought by God, those who have a birth from above, are given new hearts so that their hearts freely do what they will. They come to the light and they seek what they love. Jesus Christ. The believer comes to the light not because he is righteous in himself, but because of what God has done in him. So this passage, John 3.16 through verse 21, guards us against two dangerous false gospels. The first thing it guards us against is it guards us against boasting. It guards us against bragging. When you stand on Judgment Day in line to see the Lord Jesus Christ and you're next to an unbeliever and He knows you're a believer and He says to you, why is it you believed and I didn't believe? We lived in the same town. We went to the same church. We heard the same sermons. We went to the same Sunday school. We had the same parents. Why did you believe? The right answer is not, I was inherently more righteous and more intelligent and more spiritual than you. The answer is, these things were wrought in me by God. Coming to the light and believing in Jesus didn't originate in you, my friends. It originated in God. It originated in His love and His grace and in the work of His Spirit. And so we cannot boast of anything except the cross of Christ and the grace of God and the work of His Spirit. Loving the darkness is a result of a sinful nature. Loving the light is a result of God's gracious work. Second of all, it it guards us against the danger of cheap grace and easy believism in which you pray a prayer when you're in seventh grade on a bus ministry and you're afraid the guy in the bus won't let you get off the bus with your friends unless you raise your hand and pray a prayer. And so you do it and they tell you never doubt you're saved from now on. And then you go and you live like the devil for 60 years. And then you die and at your funeral we say, we know he's saved because when he was seven he prayed a prayer. That gospel is denied by this passage. If you walk in darkness, if your deeds are evil, if you, for all practical purposes, hate the light and won't come to it, what does this tell us? Who is this that John describes but an unbeliever? So no matter what you've said, no matter what ritual they did to you as an infant in your church or as an adult, if you love the darkness and refuse to come to the light, you're an unbeliever. And don't comfort yourself that you're saved because it's not worth risking that. And don't comfort yourself that your kids are saved who show no evidence of loving Jesus. Because it's not worth being comforted with their salvation for 50 years and have them in hell for eternity. It's just not worth it. If you love 
the darkness and you do wickedness. You cannot comfort yourself with eternal security. If you love Jesus and you believe in Him, you do what is true and you come to the light. It doesn't mean we're perfect. But we fight against sin. We make it our purpose to walk in the light as He is in the light. We're being conformed into the image of Christ. So I want to ask you this morning, I'm going to close in this way. Which one are you? Are you an unbeliever who's going to perish? Or are you one who believes in Jesus and will have eternal life? If you're an unbeliever and you know you're an unbeliever, then my exhortation to you this morning is believe. Believe. See that you're a sinner. See that you're condemned. See that you will go to hell. And see that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins and was raised from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the devil. And turn away from your sins and call out to Him in faith and call upon God to to forgive you and cleanse you and make you like Jesus and He will save you. And if you are a believer this morning, then let me ask you this. Does John's description... Which, which of John's descriptions describes you? Do you look like the unbeliever or do you look like the believer? Paul tells us to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Examine yourself. Do you love darkness or light? Do you love wickedness or do you do what is true? Are you fleeing Jesus? You come here this morning, but you haven't read a Bible in ten years. You certainly don't pray. Or do you go to Jesus? However imperfectly, you have your stands, you have your spells, your dry periods, but you pursue Jesus because you love Him. And you would have no other hope but Him, even if the world was set before you. So ask yourself this morning, do I love Jesus or do I love sin? Do I come to the light or do I run from the light so that my deeds are not exposed? Do I shrink back from spiritual conversations with other people in the church because I don't want my sin to come out? Do I do what is true or do I do what is wicked? Are my works the works of the flesh or are they works that have been wrought by God? If you're a person who loves the light and you love Jesus, then let me assure you that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that if you would believe in Him, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. And if you are a person here this morning who loves wickedness, and you're saying right now, Pastor Eric, I, I know I love my sin. I have no affections for Jesus at all. I can't say that I love Him. Let me assure you of this. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that if you will believe in Him, you will not perish, but have eternal life. We have a God who works good in people. And if you will call out to God in faith, you will be changed. Your heart will love Christ. And I would beg you this morning, come to Jesus and be saved. You must be born again or else you will perish. And you will lose the greatest reward that has ever been offered. Eternal life in the presence of the glory of the Son. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your free love 
and your free grace. Lord, if it was up to us, if it was left to you treating us how we deserve, there is nothing in us that deserves to be saved, that deserves your Son. Father, we are wicked. Thank you for your love, for sending Jesus to die for our sins, so that if we would only believe, apart from our works, we would be declared righteous on the basis of faith in your sight, because Jesus was declared condemned on our behalf. Father, as we eat this meal this morning, cause our hearts to worship and love you. As we sing this song, cause our hearts to be thankful that the blood of your Son has washed away our sin. Oh, Father, send your Spirit and work faith in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.